Hello, this is Alex Saviuk for Superior Spider Talk. Hope everybody's having a great day. Welcome to the Superior Spider Talk. My name is Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the editor of GrindMyReels.com. And I'm Mark Giannacchio, editor of the Chasing Amazing blog. Thanks for joining us for the 21st episode of Superior Spider Talk. Oh, we can drink now. Yay! We hope you enjoyed this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we hope to look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. So for episode 21, we're going to celebrate alcohol. No, I'm kidding. This is where we'll be sharing the creator interviews that I collected at New York Comic Con. I talked to so many people who worked on Spider-Man. We uh, decided to group those interviews together thematically and release them in three giant-sized podcasts. Uh, You should have hopefully already have listened to our Superior Spider Art and Writer's editions of the podcast this one we're going to call the classic spider-man art edition although we've certainly talked to enough classic artists uh, over the last couple of months at comic cons but here's a couple more because we've talked with artists who've worked on spider-man before the superior era that includes tom lyle a longtime artist who worked on adjectiveless spider-man and is credited with creating the ben riley scarlet spider design with the hoodie and all that which is pretty cool then we have Scott Hanna, who pretty much inked every Spider-Man title you can think of during the early and mid-2000s. And then Alex Saviak, a longtime artist on Amazing Spider-Man, Web of Spider-Man, and the Spider-Man Daily newspaper strip. And then, of course, the artist who illustrated my very first issue of Amazing Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man 296. Of course, if you want to get right to the interviews, you can skip to a specific section by using your chapter selection arrows on your player. This is really helpful if you're re-listening to our awesome podcast. And also, if you hear this sound, please check out your iOS device for a link to an article, video, or image to enhance your listening experience. And you can find all of our Superior Spider Talk podcasts at superiorspidertalk.podomatic.com or find us on iTunes by searching Superior Spider Talk especially in that tone of voice. And if you do, please leave a rating and a comment to let us know how we're doing, and we'll read it on the air. So let's get to the interviews, Mark. Yeah. Spider-Man and his amazing friends, Iceman and Firestar. This is Mark Giannacchio here and Artist Alley at New York Comic Con, and I am here with inker extraordinaire Scott Hanna, who uh, has probably inked more comics of Spider-Man than I can count. Just just so many of these across all the different titles, I'm sure. I'm I'm even shortchanging him in that, but but Scott, thank you so much uh, for joining us, and and I I, I guess to start things off, I mean, two two of the runs that I actually associate with, with some of your work were done by um, John Romita Jr. and John Byrne. I mean, both are considered artistic icons in the industry. In terms, so, so what was it like providing inks for, for artists with, who had such, you know, or such name recognition okay. before, you know, before uh, 
some of your first projects here on Spider-Man. To tell you the truth, it was actually very scary to work with both of those artists, especially the first time, because uh, like I grew up reading John Byrne stuff, and I love Terry Austin's takes over him in the classic uh, X-Men. And so it was very daunting getting him to work with John for the first time. And the same thing happened with John Reed Sr. I'd actually avoided working with Fair Hour for a long time because I didn't think I could handle it. And then uh, when he asked for me on Spider-Man, I had never worked with him on anything. And he asked for me out of the blue, and Al Williamson had been in him, but I loved Al Williamson over John. So I'm coming in after, like, this phenomenal anchor, working with a legend already in the industry, and, like, how am I going to do this? And with John, well, John Romita, uh, I actually asked for a sample cover, or a sample uh, pencils of his ink before I accepted the job, because I was that scared of actually working with him. And then I actually, so my very first project with John Maria Jr. was, um, I think it was uh, Spider-Man number 73 cover, and I did start doing the interiors with 75. I think that, I, I'm probably totally wrong on that, I'm with number, sorry. Uh, but anyway, so I did the cover, I could handle it, and then I ended up working with John on Spider-Man for, I think, something like 10 years without a break. Uh, and on multiple issues. We started with Adjectiveless Spider-Man and turned into Peter Parker Spider-Man. Then we went on to Amazing Spider-Man. And uh, and then I was working with John Byrne and John Romita at the same time on two different times, two different Spider-Man titles. And they both were starting with number one issues at that time, too. So that was freaky, like doing John Byrne and John Romita at the same time. So yeah, it's, but to me it's always a challenge. I love working with, you know, really talented mentors. They make me bring my A game to it, and you know I want to make them as good as I remember them being with other people, and give it my own twist and, and enhance it as much as I can too. So. I mean, beyond the the, the the intimidation factor of the of the pencil, I mean, are there any unique challenges that come with with making uh, the universe that maybe don't exist with some of the other comic book titles that you've worked on? Well, absolutely, Spider-Man. Um, has a, a, several very unique characteristics. Like Spider-Man is really part of New York City, so it's all about like skyscrapers, rooftops, water towers, street scenes. So more than almost any other Marvel character outside of say Daredevil would also be very much part of the city. But like you can do the Avengers and never really have to draw New York that much. You can do a lot of Marvel's characters and not have to worry about it. But Spider-Man is integral to the character. Spider-Man also has, you know, one of the best rogues galleries of characters. So when you're drawing Spider-Man, you're drawing a lot of very diverse looking. You know, if you're drawing the lizard that looks like a lizard, you're drawing the Green Goblin, you're drawing Sandman, you're drawing... I mean, there's so many different major characters in his universe. And so that that's something very distinctive about Spider-Man that really you have to... And you can't make everybody look the same, like any of the imagination. There's a lot of you know, 
really pushing yourself when you're doing that universe. Do you have a particular favorite character or, or, or an albatross? I know we talked to Mark Bagley recently, we were talking about how you know, people created carnage. He, he hated drawing because it was just a paint with all the, the black and the red and whatnot in terms of the, you know, the detail. Do you, have, do you have a similar story where you're like, oh God, not this guy? Um, actually, well, similar to Mark, Venom for me has always been tough to do. Uh, he's not, first of all, he's a black on black character, you know, he's, he's got all this bulk and he frequently has like teeth, some people draw with tongue, some with axe, stuff. Uh, I've done some versions of Venom that I'm happy with, some that I'm not very happy with. Uh, so he's that, he's one of those tough for me to grasp kind of characters. He's also so extreme. How much is that? Uh, $20. <laughs> so, uh, but most characters, I actually love challenging myself. So if there's a character that's tough to do, I actually embrace that. I actually enjoy a challenge when I get it. So, uh, so yeah, and to me, every time I work with a different penciler on a different character, it's like, how does, like, you know, John Romeo Jr. do it as opposed to how does Mark Bagley do it? Totally different ways of looking at the same character. Well, speaking of challenges, and this, this issue has certainly was challenging a lot of things. I know you were the anchor on the September 11th issue. Um, first of all, in terms of, I, now I heard that issue came together in like breakneck speed, right? So, so how is that, you know, just from a sheer, you know, procedural standpoint, how is that for you to like do something that quickly, uh, you know, with a, with, you know, a deadline that is essentially accelerated because of this horrendous event that happened? Well, I'm. I'm used to dealing with deadlines because I normally, like, I'll do three or four, sometimes four books a month, which means if you break that down, that means I have to do a book a week. So doing a book in a week is not that big of a deal for me. However, the 9-11 issue specifically was really about a real event, so we were doing, you know, careful research to get the locales right, the environment correct. Again, it's New York City, so we're drawing, you know, every window of every building, uh, things like that. So that that did take a lot of time and effort. It was also very, very personal to not just all of us working on it, but the whole world at the time. Uh, so it was very meaningful. Probably the most impactful, meaningful issue of any title I've ever worked on. Um, and I know even though John was living out in California at the time, he's a native New Yorker. I had been living in New York City for 14 years, so it was very personal to me. Um, so it was very heart-rending, and, and at the same time, we knew it was so important, we put our all into it. So, you know, we pretty much dropped everything to focus totally on that and give it a 100 20% kind of the effort, and I'm still very, very proud of what we accomplished with that issue. I think the artwork was stellar, the writing was amazing, but, you know, it, the colorist did a phenomenal job. I think it was just a fantastic, so it doesn't look anything like what we, like a rush job, because we all put in so much focus into that one project. Scott, I don't want to take too much more of your time, so, so before I let you go, though, I just want to see if you have anything you want to plug, any, any sites where you can find your work, or Facebook, or anything like that. Uh, well, I, one thing I'd like to plug is I'm actually teaching uh, classes at a small school that my wife and I started called the Arts and Fashion Institute.com, which is in Pennsylvania, where I live. I actually teach uh, courses in anatomy and inking and comic book art. Um, my artwork can be found at theartistchoice.com, where I sell all my original artwork. And currently, I'm working on Iron Man. Uh, it's a 
just worked on Wolverine, uh, the digital Wolverine comic uh, called Kids Most Wanted. And I'm doing, let's see, a Grand Land Court annual for DC and Earth Two annual. Excellent. Busy as always, Scott. Well, thank you so much for, for, for coming here on Superior Spider Talk. Okay, this is Mark Giannacchio here at New York Comic Con at Superior Spider Talk. We are in Artist Alley with uh, Tom Lyle, who uh, has uh, had a long, prodigious career in the comic book industry. Uh, Spider-Man fans might know him best uh, from a lot of his work in the 1990s, most notably uh, with the Scarlet Spider. Uh, he, he is credited with creating the, uh, the character design for the Scarlet Spider. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for, for joining us here. And, you know, I, I think the question I would love to lead you off with, especially with all the the clone revival that we've been seeing in the comic books today is, well, first, how did, how did you come up with the design for, for the Scarlet Spider, you know, costume and outfit, and, you know, after that, what, what do you think about what you've been seeing in the industry now with this character seemingly making a comeback? It, it, <laughs> well, the initial design, it was funny because, um, I, on a humorous note, uh, Wizard Magazine gave my costume design for the Scarlet Spider most what they called morts ever. They hated it so badly. Okay. And they had it going all along the bottom of two pages of that many morts. They hated it by badly. But most people didn't understand that that, was, that costume was supposed to look like temporary and not, you know, planned. It was, it was, it was just cobbled together. And so um, my initial thing is that at the time, was the Olympics were on, and I had watched Eric Hyden, I think, speed skate, and those super tight costumes those guys wear. And so I thought about that with a, with a sweatshirt over the top of it. And so I did about six or seven designs, and they cobbled two together for that, and, made, and we ended up with the final design. And the biggest fight I had with Marvel is, was over whether or not the belt should be outside the, the sweatshirt and around the sweatshirt or underneath it. And ultimately, Tom DeFalco and I were minor loggerheads over it, and Tom let me win because I said, I'm going to let. He wanted the belt around the outside, and I said, It's going to look really stupid. So I said, The minute Spider Man reaches up and it pulls the sweatshirt up and out of his belt, I'm never going to tuck it back in there. <laughs> And, and for another thing, I noticed that when they brought him back right now, that the hood's on the sweatshirt again. Right. And uh, if you notice that the hood disappeared, they did it without ever telling me, but the other artists were complaining that they didn't know how to draw the hood. And so they ripped it off, and I went, oh man, the hood was like a little mini cape back there. And I was like playing around with it, flapping around like a little mini cape. But, but it was because the other artists complained that they didn't. At least that's what I was told. Now, what made you decide to go with the hood? Was it just kind of because he was an outcast kind of character? And yeah, the hoodie was, I thought yeah. it would be a good way to pull it up and over and hide if you needed to and stuff like that. And it just, yeah, I was trying to play with some, some aspects of, of, yeah. And, and, it, and his costume was ultimately kind of bright with that red, so I wanted him to be able to hide it. I don't know. I liked it. I liked the big spider. But, see, I... I got the impression that, in my opinion, that spider was just a shirt, a sweatshirt that he found. So he didn't even print that up or make that. You know, most of that costume, was, you know, the only thing he made was the pouches and all that stuff. And of course, thanks to Jim Lee's influence, he has belts and pouches all over the place. <laughs> uh, what are the general challenges in, in design, in illustrating a clone? Because, I mean, it's it's the same, but there, there does have to be some nuance to it, right? So to differentiate the two characters. That was why they ultimately made Ben blonde, so we could tell him apart. <laughs> 
That's one way. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it was really difficult, and then and then we had, it started getting out of hand because we had so many clones. But it was nice that at least the ones like Kane had scarring and stuff so that we, we could tell them apart. And there were supposed to be some other clones that had minor scarring because their digital generation was just starting. Uh, but yeah, it was. It got, there were a lot of clones. Yeah. Are you, are you shocked that they're kind of back in the in the mainstream again in a lot of the Spider-Man comics? I mean, I'm just, disappointed that they that they made a Kane because Kane was supposed to die eventually. I mean, he was, you know, degenerating right. clone. Right. Um, I wish, but you know, they ultimately, allegedly killed Ben way back when. So, uh, who, who was in, when we started? As, as most people well know, Ben was supposed to turn out to be the real Peter Parker. Right. And and, and, if, and if you haven't had it explained to you, the reason we were trying to do this story is ultimately what Joe Quesada did with the the, the one more day or one more day or whatever it is. I think our story is better. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because I ultimately was trying to, to, to campaign to take um, the, the guy who had been Peter and make him into a permanent Scarlet Spider and design a permanent costume for him, and that he and Mary Jane would go off to the side and we'd have like, you know, a Scarlet Spider character. Um, but yeah, uh, the Kong story is just keeping I like that they bring it back. On, on a subtle note, I'm going to mention that I don't make any royalties off of that costume and it frustrates the heck out of me. They found a way to say that it's not a new character and so they didn't have to pay me for it. And I will say, Marvel paid me really well while I was on Spider-Man, but that frustrates me because of how many toys you get. Right. And they don't send me the toys or anything. No, that's too bad. I mean, because, I mean, the, I guess... I love the Marvel, but... Yeah. It was just a technicality, I guess, because, I mean, the, 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 like, after the there whole... There was a checklist yeah. that they went down, and there were two things that they said I didn't meet for a new character. And one of them was that Ben Riley was really Peter Parker, so he wasn't new. And there was something else I remember, but it was two really weird technicalities. And, uh, yeah. All right. Well. But anyway. Yes. Overall, I'm excited to see it back. Yeah. It's fun to see my costume, and, and and it's really fun when I go to a con and see somebody dressed up as Rock. I mean, as a Scarlet Spider. I mean, it's really cool. Right. Um. And, and I actually walked up to a guy once and said, "I designed that costume." Anyway. Whoa. Well, I think it also kind of validates. I mean, because you know, there was obviously some fan backlash, and I mentioned this when I had interviewed Danny Figueroa a couple months ago. I mean, I, I think this. It's one of those stories where now that years have passed. People have gone back like, oh, that wasn't so bad. You know what I mean? Like, and and, and then and then I think this further validates that that, that it, these stories it, are coming back. It got messy because people had trouble committing to it and sticking with that commitment because Marvel at the time was getting so much pressure about the way things were coming. So I think Danny was under tremendous pressure to make it a monster seller. Right. And I think it could have been, and, and, but you know, we actually sort of badgered Danny into doing that storyline. Uh, it was Terry Kavanaugh's idea originally. He approached. Howard and Mark Mattis, and somehow I got in those negotiations really early. Yeah. And then, and then we we badgered Tom DeFalco and Danny into doing it. And Tom was one of the writers, and he got on board eventually. But, but it's funny because somebody came up yesterday, and they're like, "Do you remember calling me and asking me for another opinion about that storyline?" And I went, "Oh God, I forgot about that." <laughs> so, um, just just on, on a final note before we let you go uh, back to the yeah your work here. Um, in terms of you mentioned the early '90s and kind of how the story kind of grew, but I mean, in general, what was it like early early mid '90s at Marvel? I mean, there, there's so much going on. I mean, you know, for, I know you did work on Maximum Carnage, which was kind of another one. 
of those big kind of was the story bigger than it needed to be kind of uh, arcs that that you know has well you know the early nineties was the beginning of the big event stuff and, yeah and, and the Secret Wars sort of triggered that from the eighties and stuff but I will say that I came over from DC and the Robin and Batman stuff to to work on Spider Man and Danny courted me Danny Finrod courted me big time and I was really happy to be there it was a really nice. Um, place to be, the creative juices were flowing, and he gave me some opportunities to write some stuff, even though I was really a neophyte at it, and I really can't thank him enough for that, um, but it was it was such a cool energy going on, I mean, I didn't always agree with the let's have a big event type right, thing, because right. I, I thought, oh man, we're sort of stretching something out a little bit, and you know, Maximum Carnage, God bless it, I'm still earning royalties on that. Right, thing. yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, it was hugely, hugely successful. So, so it, it, yeah. it, I, I thought it was a little bit of a, a, of a stretching it, but you know what? It's got legs, so it must have been, it, it was a great idea. And, you know, the clone story ultimately has had legs, and that, I, I thank Terry Cavanaugh and Missy for bringing that. Did, so. As an artist, did the like the gimmicky covers kind of upset your sensibilities ever? The the foil, the holograms. I was actually more more like on the Robin miniseries. I was more in, uh, against them because they had so many different gimmicks than I was with like the Spider-Man Fifty. We had the foil version, which was really pretty cool because it had that neat hologram in the eyes. Um, sometimes I think variant covers are a pain, but you know, ultimately, if, if people just remember if they're buying it for the enjoyment of it. Well Tom, yeah. well, Tom, thanks again. Where, where else can we find some of your stuff right now? I know you're, you're doing some work on, on some comics. Where, just well, let, plug away. Um, yeah. Well, I want to plug away the two things, and, and one of which is that I'm a professor full-time at the Savannah College of Art and Design in, in Savannah, Georgia, and they have a campus in Hong Kong, Atlanta, Savannah, and a satellite campus in Lacoste, France. But they have a full-time sequential art program there where we teach comic art illustration and storyboarding. And I've been there for, I'm in my ninth year now. It's a really cool school. Uh, I would recommend you, anybody who's interested in this to look into it. And then the other thing is uh, Chuck Dixon and I reunited after uh, a zillion years. And uh, we're doing a weekly web strip, which isn't weekly right now because of my schedule. Uh, <laughs> Chuck's already written the first 26 weeks of it. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but uh, for the Edgar Rice Burroughs Company, um, we're doing their uh, material on Pelucidar, and they've got Tarzan strip up there. But they've got, I think, seven weekly web strips. That's it. www.edgarriceburroughs.com slash comics. And you can actually, for all the comics they're offering for their website, by the way, it's only $1.99 a nice. month, uh, they have the first four episodes of every strip up there for free for you to read Oh, that's great. Well, so go check it out and go see what Pelucidar looks like. That's the one Chuck and I are doing together. And it's a blast working with Chuck. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and I hope I hope you guys will uh, just stick around. I, I love Spider-Man, by the way, and I miss him so much. I'm going to say, do you have any more stories you think you can tell with Spider-Man? Oh. Tremendously. Okay. Yeah, that's a. You know, I had not followed Spider-Man all that regularly until I got on the book. You know, for a while. I mean, I, I mean, I grew up with Steve Ditko and, and John Romita. So, uh, but that character is just so cool. Yeah. yeah. He is so cool. Well, well, our listeners would obviously agree with you, Tom. Tom, thanks again for for joining us. We really appreciate thanks, it. Mark, I appreciate it. Okay, this is Mark Giannacchio with Superior Spider Talk here at New York Comic Con in Artist Alley with Alex Saviak. 
Alex uh, is a, a longtime Spider-Man and comic book artist. Uh, he actually, as I was just talking to him before we went on tape, uh, illustrated the very first issue of Amazing Spider-Man that I read as a kid, Amazing Spider-Man 296, but also had a very extensive run on Web of Spider-Man with Jerry Conway. Does the Spider-Man newspaper strip, um, and you know we'll, we'll let Alex you know plug plug more of what he's working on. But before we start, um, Alex, I, I did want to ask you when you started on Spider-Man, it kind of came in that transition period, you know, after DeFalco Friends, but before McFarlane, and, and well, I know you worked with, with uh, Michelini, um, but what were the circumstances behind some of those initial issues that you did, and how did that segue to when you started the long-term project on Web of Spider-Man? Well, before I got to Marvel Comics in 1986, when um, I guess things basically, I'd say, dried up for me. At DC Comics, I was working primarily on the Superman books, and they were changing editorially, so Julia Schwartz, who was the editor at that time, wasn't going to be working on it anymore, and they were changing the writers and artists. And not that they wouldn't have been able to find work for me, but I needed work right away, so I just took my my pages over to Marvel across town. I had um, a long-running relationship with John Romita Sr. at that time already, and um, called him up, asked him if uh, I could possibly swing by, bring some stuff over. He said, by all means. They always need people to at least do fill-ins because people are, artists are perennially late. So um, that was a Tuesday, dropped my work off. By Thursday, I had a phone call to come in and start working, uh, filling in on an Iron Man comic. And then after that, I was doing some covers and a couple of other fill-ins on some books. I worked on... Um, of all things, Chuck Norris and the Karate Commandos for an issue or two. And uh, I guess they just kept giving me work until I could find my niche. And all of a sudden, at one point, I got um, Howard Mackey, who was had written his first story, which was that Iron Man fill-in. And then he was also the writer on the Chuck Norris stuff. I guess he was already friendly with a bunch of editors up there, and um, he knew Jim Salakrup as the editor of Spider-Man at the time, and uh, I guess John Romita a Jr. needed a fill-in artist on Amazing Spider-Man number 292, and I guess Jim was talking to Howard, Howard said, uh, yeah, I think, why don't you give Alex a try, he's a really good storyteller, etc. And so basically that's how that came about. I got a call from Jim Salakrup asking me if I'd be interested in filling in on a Spider-Man book. So we did that, and after I finished that one, he had a two-parter for me, which was uh, 295 and 296, being that that being the one that you uh, uh, was the first issue for you. And uh, I had no idea that Todd McFarlane was coming in after that. I had assumed that J.R. Jr. was going to come back and work on the book again. It just so happened that um, Todd McFarlane followed me on Spider-Man, and, uh, well, the rest is history for that book. Right. But at the, after I finished that, that particular three-issue thing on Amazing, um, they asked me if I'd still be interested in filling in now on Web of Spider-Man because that artist was late. So they gave me a two-part story to do that while the artist was catching up on ending up on the issue before that, and this way he could get ahead on the next issue. So I did Web of Spider-Man 35 and 36 while he was supposed to be working on 37. 
Then when I finished those two issues, they said, hey, listen, can you, you want to do another one? I said, of course. We'll give you Web of Spider-Man 39. I said, what happened to 38? Well, as soon as he gets done with 37, we're going to give him 38, and then you'll finish. And mm-hmm. I said, okay, great. So I did number 39, and then they said, hey, would you want to do another one? I said, sure, why not? Okay, I said, what is it? He goes, number 38. I said, I just finished 39. What happened to the other guy? Um, well, he's still working on 37. I said, I didn't want to ask any more questions. I said, hey, okay, his loss is my gain. Um, but now I knew that if I did the issue after it, this issue is going to be even later. So I really had to crack a whip on myself and uh, get to work. And... Um, Believe it or not, considering that there, you know, in those days, obviously, you were looking in 1987. We didn't have Google Internet image search or anything like that. So basically, we're still either taking your own reference photos or going to the libraries or bookstores and picking up whatever you can. And 38 had a sequence in there outside the Lincoln Tunnel. Now, I couldn't find Lincoln Tunnel reference to save my beans, okay? So there I was with my camera, and there's a wall surrounding the entrance of the Lincoln Tunnel. I basically had to kind of climb the wall a bit, prop myself up, and on my elbows take all kinds of shots of the entrance of the Lincoln Tunnel just because I wanted to make it look real. Right. And so then I got around the side, and I took a couple of shots there. Actually, at some point, just held my camera up blindly taking shots and pointing downward just to see what I could get. Well, I got enough material to make it worthwhile. And um, so finished that issue, turned it in. They, then again, they said, would you want to do another? Uh, we have a four-part story for you in web. Um, and I said, well, what happened to the other guy? <laughs> well, he's not on the book anymore, so we're going to give it to you, basically. There you go. <laughs> and uh, I said, wow, fantastic. So literally, even though I was filling in on 35 and 36, I consider that to be my initial introduction to Web of Spider-Man. That's where the run started. And the fill-in, I figure 37 was the other guy filling in for me. <laughs> so anyway, that particular run lasted until 116, about seven and a half years later. Right. And uh, there were a couple of issues in there that I didn't draw. I had to take a little break in there for three issues because they asked me to do a graphic novel called Parallel Lives. Yep. And so I said, well, just to sort of keep my run going intact on web, how about if I just draw the covers at least for those three, which I did. And, um, yeah, so that pretty much uh, is all she wrote for Webb. And I actually I got off the book because, unfortunately, because of the marketing and sales and all that stuff, um, I guess sales were starting to dwindle already across the board, regardless of how well a book was doing previously. And so it was the type of thing where they let me know, look, we already changed the writer, we changed anchors, we've changed colorists, and the sales aren't increasing, so somebody else still has to go, according to Upstairs. So I said, really? That's, that's your criterion for wanting to take me off the book? I said, I said, wow, you're kidding me. And they go, look, we know it sounds unfair. If you want to scream, go ahead. Um, I said, well, if I scream, does that get me the book back? And they said, no. I said, well, then why am I going to bother screaming? That's, a, that's, a, that's annoying for you, and it's not going to make me feel any better. So I said, well, I guess they said, but we have good news. I said, what's that? We have another, we're, we want, we're going to be doing a Spider-Man book based on the animated adventures, and you can draw it in your own style. It's nothing animated at the time. And um, you're going to start with number one if you want it. So I said, okay, so let me get this straight. You're taking me off a book that I've got this solid run on, and you want to get another penciler for that, but you're also now offering me another Spider-Man book that starts at number one. Um, I said, something sounds a little bit wrong with this quote-unquote picture of words. 
And I said, well, you know, it is what it is. It's like they want Web of Spider-Man sales to increase. So I said, okay, fine. I said, but the stipulation, I said, my stipulation is that I really would like to ink the first issue, maybe the second and third, because I'm not saying that I'm not a I'm not a greedy individual, but at that time, comic books were selling well enough to render a certain amount of royalties um, on the monthly titles, and usually every number one book, obviously, was going to get, you know get more interest, would sell a whole bunch of copies, and I was hoping that I'd make a fortune on number one. I didn't. There were regular types of royalties, and as the book increased, uh, as we went progressed. The royalties got smaller and smaller, but, um, you know, it was okay. And quite honestly, I stayed on that book pretty much for two and a half years until it got canceled. And in the meantime, Webb with the new creative team got canceled after one year. Mm -hmm. So I still had work for another year and a half after the other, after the other book folded. So it was okay. I mean, it, it is what it is. And after that particular book got canceled, um, I literally stopped working for Marvel and ended up going to... Uh, Jim Salakrup had left Marvel at that point uh, earlier because he was offered a, I guess, a more managerial position at Topps Comics, mm -hmm. and I guess they were looking for somebody to do the X-Files, so I basically drifted over there and worked on the X-Files for a year after that. So that turned out okay because I wish, again, I wish the X-Files would have continued, but once they had basically approval system to go through in California with the whole creative team there and when the X-Files movie came out they said they didn't have time to go through approvals anymore so they didn't end up renewing the license with Tops and the book basically folded. Right. So that's how that started. Excellent. Or ended, I should say. When you were working on Web, now at the same time you had McFarlane and then Larson on Amazing and then you had Sal Buscema on Spectacular. So we're talking very different this, uh, this, this, distinct artists working on the same character but for different books. Um, you know, when we, we actually talked to Jim Salakruk uh, at Connecticut Comic Con a few months ago, and he had mentioned the whole idea of, you know, trying to, I guess, make the, the titles a little more unified uh, visually. What, I mean, what did that mean for you with, with Webb? Because obviously how you draw Spider-Man is, is different than, uh, than McFarlane or than different than Sabo Scamma. Um, well, actually, what happened was when Todd came on Amazing, obviously, we all know the popularity that, the, that his artwork uh, added to that book, to that title anyway, and the sales basically were going through the roof. So that being said, marketing-wise, again, well, Todd McFarlane sells books. There's three of us or even four of us drawing Spider-Man. Let's, as you say, unify the look. So we had a meeting, and they said, um, basically... Well, Todd, you know, Todd has gone back to the roots of Spider-Man, more like a Ditko-esque type of look with, um, well, Todd put in the bigger eyes. Steve Ditko used to have a, an inordinate amount of webs all yeah. over Spider-Man yeah. to the point where if he drew a small head, there'd be just a couple of webs, obviously, but then if he drew a large close-up, mm -hmm. the webs would just multiply. Mm -hmm. John Romita, after he had followed Ditko, had gone ahead and basically... Created, you know, tried to solve the, you know, get the method from the madness, so to speak, by saying, okay, if if there's five webs on his head or five patterns on his head when he's little, if he blows up to a huge size and he takes up the whole page, there should still be the same web patterns, just larger, which made a lot of sense. And when I started drawing Spider-Man, I followed that particular design pattern that John Romita started. Okay. 
So as we as we were saying, talking about uh, Todd McFarlane's Amazing Spider-Man was very very popular, increasing the sales exponentially almost to the point where Jim Salakrup wanted to get a unified look for the uh, for the book in terms of how we draw Spider-Man. So I think Sal and myself were more or less conforming to the John Romita style of drawing Spider-Man with the amount of webbing and let's say the more of the realistically based way of posing him, etc. Whereas Todd was going back to the Steve Ditko version and really expanding on that in terms of how, uh, let's say, flexible he really was. And so basically Jim Salaprup asked us if we could just take a look at Todd's work and just maybe stretch our way of thinking a little bit more and then conform to that particular wide-eyed look that he gave Spider-Man and adding more webs, etc. And basically, as Jim said, we'll make it look more like Ditko. Yeah. So literally, that's what we did. And um, we, I mean, I looked at Todd's stuff, and of course, it was very exaggerated. And adding that particular flavor to my Spider-Man really turned out to be a lot of fun for me. I, I enjoyed doing it without really having to compromise too much of my own style. Yeah. So uh, I think it worked out pretty good. Yeah. Um, beyond Romita, who are some of your artistic influences from the comic book medium? Well, I would have to definitely go back uh, and say, mm, I, from when I was a little kid, there was Kurt Swan and um, Dick Sprang on Batman and Wayne Boring on Superman also. And then I got introduced to uh, the Julie Schwartz books like uh, Green Lantern with Gil Kane, Carmine Infantino, Murphy Anderson, Joe Kubert, one of my all-time favorites. Um, then I got introduced to Marvel Comics and right away I fell in love with Jack Kirby's artwork and uh, even Don Heck, Steve Ditko. Uh, of course, then John Buscema came along and Neil Adams. And as time went on, the list grew You know, to people like, well, Wallywood was always a favorite. And then you also had guys like Joe, Jose Garcia Lopez come around. Um, well, we could probably sit around and I could dig up more and more. If you want to say, well, even Frank Frazetta was an influence. Mm -hmm. um, I, when I was at DC Comics, uh, even before I got there, Ross Andrew was one of my favorites. And then I got to work with him as an editor on The Flash. Mm. So I worked on seven issues of The Flash with him as an editor. And those seven issues, I learned a ton from Ross because of his experience. Um, yeah. Um, now... Obviously, one of the other big Spider-Man projects you've worked on for quite a long time is the is the newspaper strip. How did? Could you tell a little bit about how you got involved with that project and and how? I mean, it, it's it's written by Stan. So how how often are you involved with with Stan Lee when it comes to the newspaper strip? Okay, well to start it off, um, I'm involved not as much now as I used to be because he's. He's pulled in all these different directions with all the things that he does on television and in film. But we do stay in contact email-wise. Uh, when I first got introduced to the strip, I had just gotten done with working on my Spider-Man book in 1996. And so 97 was coming about, and I was just starting on the X-Files. And uh, I got a call from Ralph Macchio up at Marvel. And he asked me how things were going, if I'd be interested in drawing the Spider-Man Sunday newspaper strip because Fred Keita, who was an old-timer from the 40s, had been drawing a strip for the last year, year and a half, and he was really actually filling in for whoever the artist was before him. And as it turned out, he just... Um, Finally, not that he got fed up with it, but I guess he was old enough where he said he wanted to retire. Right. So they were looking for somebody. Um, I got in touch with 
Stan Lee's office and I spoke to his secretary. She said, send over some samples. Uh, so I just put some Web of Spider-Man comics together, sent it out there with a letter of intent and interest. And um, they gave me a call a couple of days later after they got the material. And Stan Lee wanted to see how I would handle a horizontal newspaper-style format. Mm -hmm. So literally I said, well, do you send me a script? And they said, well, just put something together. So I figured, well, it's I've been doing this for a long time, but Stanley wants to see a sample. I'm not going to disappoint him. So literally, I just came up with a six-panel little scene of Spider-Man swinging down, sees Jonah Jameson on the, on the ground, walking, uh, a couple of muggers come into play, and just before they get to J. Jonah Jameson, Spider-Man webs them and attaches them to a flagpole, mm -hmm. and as he's swinging away and waving to Jonah, Jonah's putting his fist up like, right. well, you're still a menace, you punk, right, you know, right. that kind of a thing. Stan loved it. Um, I, was, uh, I was away from home when he actually called me on the telephone, and... Well, I still have the, the little CD cassette tape from the answering machine, which probably is decayed by now. <laughs> but at any rate, I remember coming home from wherever I was with my wife, and we saw that we had a, a voicemail, and it was Stan Lee. He personally called me up, and he goes, Hey, Alex, I'm so glad that you're interested in drawing the Spider-Man strip. It's really great. I love your artwork. It doesn't pay that much, but think of the glory. <laughs> so literally... Um, he basically wanted to know when I could get started, etc., etc., and um, so that's pretty much all she wrote. I think within the, within the next, by the end of that week, I must have gotten my first two scripts. Usually, we get them two at a time, um, two Sundays to do at a time. But I get two weeks worth of dailies and Sundays, so you can follow it because it's not that the Sundays are separate from the dailies storyline. They Sunday basically almost recaps it, but kind of moves forward a little bit, and then Monday you get started. If you, if you didn't see the Sunday and you went from Saturday to Monday, you wouldn't really lose that much. Right. But if you just basically print the Sundays right. and not show the six days in between, oh, that's yeah. when you get a little crazy. Yeah, yeah forget and it. And basically sometimes I'd be finishing up a Sunday where it'll say next week. The, tie, the tagline on the bottom would be the aftermath. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, man, Larry gets to draw the whole fight for the week. And the first panel of my following Sunday is the guy being walked away in handcuffs. <laughs> so I get to miss out on some of the fun of battle, you know. But uh, now that I'm inking, uh, I'd say that was 1997. I'm still doing the newspaper strip today. Um, in 2003, in February, I had gotten a call from Stan Lee's office that John Tar Tagliano, who was inking the daily strip over Larry Lieber, Stan's brother, um, had taken ill, was going into the hospital. Could I possibly fill in for him and ink a week of dailies? So I did that, and I had fun doing it, and I just let them know, hey, if John ever wants to take a break and he uh, wants to have a vacation or some time. John was already 82 or 83 at the time, so I figured, well, if, if I get another call to do it, I had a good time, that would be great. As it turned out, unfortunately, I did get that call in, I think, November of 2003 that John had taken really ill. Uh, he had succumbed to cancer, I believe, and uh, passed away. And they liked what I had done earlier in the year. Would I be interested in inking the newspaper strip for good? So now that's 10 years ago, and I'm still doing that also. So uh, it's 10 years on the dailies. It's 16 years on the Sundays and counting. And, um, hey, you know, God willing, we'll just keep on going and going. Yeah. I mean, as someone who's worked with this character for so long, what has it meant to you personally to, have, to be a Spider-Man artist? 
Um, well, I feel that, if nothing else, just by the fact that I'm in this medium, I have a legacy. After I'm long gone, my artwork is going to survive, uh, whether people like it or not. I'm going to be in books as having drawn Spider-Man, having drawn the newspaper strip. And I think it's pretty important. It's pretty cool to know that, hey, I've actually been drawing Spider-Man without a break, even though I've, a book might have gotten canceled in 96, but I picked up drawing Spider-Man in 97. So my run of drawing Spider-Man since 1987 remains unbroken to this day. We're talking 26 years and counting. Right. And as long as the newspaper strip is out, I'll keep going and hopefully I'll hit 30 and 35 years on that as time goes on. So I think just uh, the fact that you can, you know, be proud that I can be proud that I've worked on this character for such a long time. And even though people say to me, aren't you sick of drawing Spider-Man already? My God, it's how many, 20, 25 years? And I say, you know, the stories are fun. I've always liked the character. Uh, there's a lot going on with the supporting cast. It's not just Spider-Man beating up on villains, etc. So it's um, it's great. I mean, as long as the storylines are fun and I'm having a good time, hey, I'm not letting go of it. So... Uh, that's pretty much it. Excellent. Well, before we let you go for good here, uh, Alex, could you, do you want to plug where maybe people can find or buy more of your artwork or, uh, I mean, beyond the, 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 the Daily Strip, where else we can find some of your work right now? Um, I don't, unfortunately, I've been saying this for years and years, I don't have a website, but you can, if you friend me on Facebook and mention that uh, you've heard me, heard this interview on the podcast, I'll probably friend you, and then by doing that, you'll be able to see a whole bunch of things online that I've posted in my photo albums. Excellent. Well, that, that sounds like a plan, Alex. Thank you so much again for joining us on Superior Spider Talk. Amazing friend. So, uh, Mark, that was pretty cool that you got to meet all those artists, especially Alex Saviak, who you know drew your first issue. That's pretty special for you, I- I'm guessing. Yeah, and kind of going against my typical convention, I-, I actually led with that when I started talking to Alex, and he was a real gentleman about it and seemed very happy to talk. In fact, he just started talking to me and didn't even realize I hadn't started recording yet. And you know, he was talking to me about some of his artistic influences and stuff, and he was just like, come on, man, put that interview on. <laughs> I'm like I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Let me get to it. So it was it was quite the experience. Very you know very nostalgic for me, but I'll on too. Cool. Well, if you guys have any opinions on these interviews or any questions at all, you can email them to us at superiorspidertalk at gmail.com, and we will address and read them on the air. And then also be sure to check our Facebook page at facebook.com slash superiorspidertalk because the entire world is on Facebook, as I'm reminded every day, and because it's actually a great place to keep up with us in between shows as we often put up articles that we've written and other breaking news about the Spider-Man universe and also how to get in touch with us. Cool, Mark. Well, uh, you know, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, where can't you find me on the inter- on the internet, Dan? Uh, you've never you can- made that joke before. No. Well, I think you've made that joke. Uh, you can find me at www.chasingamazingblog.com, on Twitter at chasingasmblog, on Facebook on facebook.com/chasingamazing, uh, and on Gimmick or Good on Comics Should Be Good, and Dan. Well, you can go to my website, dangavastin.com, and it has links to all the things that I do on the Internet. But you can more specifically find me on Twitter at at and you can tweet away at me if you feel the need to. 
And uh, you can go to my movie review site at grindmyreels.com. So, uh, Mark, you know, it's kind of funny. Um, I was at the mall the other day. Um, do you often go to the mall? Uh, every once in a while. I, I did grow up on Long Island, so malls were our thing. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, well, I, actually, the mall I was, uh, I was in was in Queens, and, yeah, I was just taking a trip up there, and... Um, so I was, and you didn't and you didn't come and visit me. What's wrong with you? Yeah, no, I you know I I, I had more pressing things to do like shop at H and M. Okay, continue. Yeah, so I was in the mall. Excuse me, uh, Mark. You know uh, for for not seeing you, and uh, you know I was in the the food court and I and I sat down and I was enjoying. You know, a, an amazing burger. It was just wonderful, and I was biting into it, and then I heard some commotion behind me, and this this blonde boy and this other like large bald boy, it was strangely bald for being in high school, were uh, were like picking on this nerdy kid down the way, and they threw a taco at him, and it got all over his head. But then, you know, this man came out of nowhere, this like gray-haired, ponytailed man. And he kind of told them off, and, you know, I, I kind of looked at him, and I was like, wow, you know, like, what a nice guy. You know, he, he really cares for this young young boy who seems to be the butt of their joke. Um, and then, you know, I went over to say, like, you know, I really respect what you're doing. And he said, wait, are, are you Dan Gavazdan? I, I think I, I know a friend of yours. And, you know, he probably knows you because he met you in New York, uh, Mark. Do you know anybody with a, a gray hair and a ponytail? Gray hair and a ponytail. Yes. That's got to be my ultimate Uncle Ben, and I bet he had a moral for you, which was, with great podcasts must also come superior spider talk.